Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Intermountain Turf and Landscape Podcast. In this episode, I talked with Dr. Eric Miltner, and we talked all things nitrogen, from its role in the plant all the way up to different technologies and how they've evolved over the last few decades. A lot of useful information. I had a really fun time recording this podcast and talking to Dr. Miltner. Grateful for him taking some time out to talk to me. Uh, bear with some of the audio uh, difficulties. We did this over Skype, and there are some uh, little bugs here and there, but it's well worth your listen. You'll find a lot of good information about nitrogen as you look to make decisions about your fertilizer programs and, and how you're going to handle your operation. So hope you enjoy it, and we'll get to it. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Miltner. We're grateful to have him with us and for carving out a little bit of time. Uh, Dr. Miltner, why don't you tell us a little bit about, a bit about yourself, kind of your work history and, and your education? Yeah, thank you, Aaron. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for getting uh, in contact with me. So um, uh, I guess I got my first taste uh, of the turf industry back in high school working on a golf course, um, continued to work on golf courses off and on through college, uh, got my bachelor's and master's degree at the <laughs> University of Georgia, and went from there to Michigan State University, where uh, I finished up uh, my doctorate studies. Um, my first job out of school was was uh, just up the road from you at Utah State University. I was there from uh, 94 to 90, almost 1998, if any of your listeners go back that far. <laughs> um, uh, I was actually the first uh, person hired there to work specifically in, in turf grass. Uh, I was the predecessor to Paul Johnston, for, for those of you who know Paul and Kelly Cope as well. Um, went from there to Washington State University, uh, and then in 2011, um, left for a job in the, in the private sector and, and went to work for uh, a fertilizer manufacturer, uh, Agrium at the time. Uh, and then their turf and ornamental business was bought by Coke Agronomic Services in 2014. So I've been over on the uh, industry side of it for about seven years now. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to have you. Uh, so in this in this episode, uh, we wanted to talk uh, about nitrogen. Nitrogen and nitrogen fertilization uh, is going to be kind of our focus. So let's kind of start uh, there on the on the basic level. Let's talk about, or if you wouldn't mind talking about what nitrogen does for the plant on a cellular level and kind of how it impacts uh, the plant growth. I mean, when we talk about nitrogen fertilization and our inputs into, into the plant, nitrogen is really uh, the biggest thing that we deal with. Um, so talk a little bit about that. What, what is the role of nitrogen in the plant? Yeah, so you know when we when we talk about fertilization, I always like to um, you know remind people that that fertilization is really um, um, a supplemental practice, uh, supplying nutrients that the soil can't supply. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. Um, right. We use nitrogen the most for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's used in a lot of places in the plant, but also uh, some of those other nutrient elements. Uh, there are adequate amounts in the soil, so we oftentimes have to apply, say, less P, K, calcium, sulfur, whatever. Um, but anyway, nitrogen is used throughout the plant. It's, it's a component of chlorophyll, and that's one of the reasons we see a greening response to nitrogen. Um, but, you know, when it's first incorporated, it's, it's incorporated into amino acids. And then those amino acids become building blocks for lots of things in the plant 
proteins, enzymes, nucleic acids. And uh, so it's, it just serves an incredibly uh, important uh, function in a lot of things on a cellular level throughout the plant. Gotcha. What are, and what are the, so, so it does a lot, what are the visual kind of results? So if I'm, you know, a guy out just applying fertilizer, I grab a bag of nitrogen or urea, whatever, it, whatever I picked up um, and I put it out on my lawn, uh, what, are, what are the most prominent visual uh, results of that nitrogen when, when looking at the plant? So typically, uh, shortly after application, we'll see we'll see a greening response, and and you know that depends a little bit on the exact fertilizer you're using. We'll we'll get into some of those details later, I'm sure. But um, you know, with a typical water soluble quick release source, we generally see a fairly quick green response to the plant, and then we see a response in vegetative growth. And uh, from you know from a big picture standpoint, those are the two things that stand out the most. Um, but of course, it it impacts all vegetative parts of the plant. So if you have a, a turf, say like Kentucky bluegrass, that develops thatch, um, over fertilization can lead to too much thatch buildup. Uh, it certainly impacts root growth, um, and uh, really just about any other any other part of the plant. So it's it's the single biggest thing really that's going to drive growth of the plant um, from a nutritional standpoint. And with that, seeing as nitrogen is so involved in so many aspects of the plant, are there any telltale signs that nitrogen is the limiting factor? So if you're out on a on a piece of turf and you're trying to diagnose something about it, is there any discoloration or anything that someone could look at and say, yes, this this uh, lawn is lacking nitrogen, or is it simply is, is it involved in so much that there's really kind of no way to pinpoint that uh, from a visual standpoint? Well, that's a good question. And, you know, of course, that could be a complicated process diagnosing what's holding turf back. But, you know, typically with a nitrogen deficiency, you'll see the plant use color and it'll go off color, you know, either pale green or even the yellow in case of severe deficiencies. Um, but I think the other thing to kind of key on is to watch the growth rate of the plant. And if you if you find that um, it's just not growing very much, you're mowing and not producing many clippings, you know, that could be an indication that you're low on nitrogen. Of course, the plant could respond, be responding to other stresses in the environment, but, um, uh, you know, la- lack of top growth would be, you know, one potential indicator that, that you're a little short on N. That would make sense. Um, so speaking of uh, nitrogen deficiency, how much does turf need? How much nitrogen typically when we're talking about supplementing a nitrogen does turf need? And let's, for instance, let's take a, let's take a higher performing piece of turf, maybe a sports field, something like that. If you're kind of planning out a year, how much nitrogen are we looking at? What, what are the nitrogen requirements of say Kentucky bluegrass here in the Intermountain West. Yeah, so for something like a sports field that's going to get a lot of use and a lot of traffic, uh, well, uh, I guess let's kind of start with a broader view. I, you know, in general, Kentucky bluegrass, we generally think of somewhere between, for most uses, two to four pounds of nitrogen of nitrogen per thousand square feet per year. Um, you know, you can get away with that smaller amount in low maintenance areas. Uh, you know, higher maintenance. Uh, uh, area that needs to, to look better and perform better that higher amount but 
you know, in the case of a sports turf, that's going to take a lot of traffic. Um, you know, you may even need to go higher than that. It kind of depends on your, you know, the seasons that the fields you're going to be using, uh, the length, the length of the season. Um, but you know, it wouldn't be unreasonable to see rates uh, even above four pounds of N per thousand per year under high traffic situations. Gotcha. And does does climate or soil play a role in that or temperature? What what other factors may may impact how much nitrogen re, is required? You talked about kind of the traffic um, and, and performance. Are there other factors that play a role in how much nitrogen is needed? You know, I would say as far as climate goes, um, I mean, number one, climate is going to, you know, could impact the species that you grow and, and all kinds of different grass species have different you know, nitrogen needs. But if we're going to talk about the climate in the Intermountain West and Kentucky bluegrass, I think, you know, the primary factor would be sort of length of the growing season. So if you're if you're down in the valley and you have a, you know, a longer growing season, long summer, um, you know, just based on the length of that, your night, your annual nitrogen requirements may be higher than they are, say, if you're up in the mountains and your growing season is is significantly shorter. So, you know, that would be that would be one uh, one, one impact of weather and climate soil type for sure. Uh, if you have a soil that is, you know, it's kind of a mature soil and it's, you know, sort of a loamy, you know, silty loamy and has, you know, high, high levels of organic matter that that organic matter is going to provide uh, a decent amount of the nitrogen that your plant needs to grow. If you're in a, a sandier soil or soil with lower organic matter, you're probably going to need to use more, uh, apply more supplemental nitrogen through fertilization. That makes sense. Yeah, there's not not many of that uh that loamy nice soil here in the here in the mountains out west. We That's why I remember it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's get into some some application methods or I guess some forms of nitrogen on, on a basic level. Let's talk about dry versus liquid uh, nitrogen forms. Uh, here in the Intermountain West, it, it's I, it, I, if I had to slap a percentage on it, I would say 90% of people are using a dry formulated uh, nitrogen source, a granular prilled product that, that they're spreading dry. But the trend has kind of been more towards liquid, particularly in the private sector where there are uh, lawn care professionals or turf professionals that are that are treating lots of different different properties liquid kind of allows them to be a little more efficient so let's talk about the differences uh there between dry and liquid maybe some of the pros and cons uh in that in that vein yeah it's an interesting that's an interesting question interesting subject and there's a lot of different things that 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 influence it so you know, there's both sort of um, agronomic reasons or, or agronomic uh, issues to talk about. And then there's also sort of the, the business issues to talk about. And you mentioned it when you talked about, you know, maybe greater efficiency in, in, in providing liquids. But, um, you know, let, let's kind of start with sort of a, an agronomic and, and product choice uh, answer. Um, you know, granular products, um, generally they're... For a lot of people, they're 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 less expensive to apply because the equipment is relatively inexpensive. If you're going to apply liquid products, you have to have some kind of a sprayer, and you know, depending, you know, whether you're a golf course or a lawn care company or whatever, you know, the the cost of that can vary quite a bit, you know, versus the cost of a granular fertilizer spreader. Um, 
if you're applying granular products, um, you really have just a, a really wide array of choices of the kinds of, of, of products you want to apply, especially when it comes to slow and controlled release fertilizers that might provide really, really extended feeding. Um, when you get onto the liquid side of things, um, you know, most of the products you're looking at, they, they tend to be relatively soluble and relatively quick release. There are some liquid slow release fertilizers out there, but they're sort of limited in longevity to maybe, you know, maybe eight to 10 weeks of longevity, uh, as an example. Whereas with, with dry granular products, you can buy, you know, polymer coated ureas where you can make one application, uh, or two applications, you know, that'll get you through, through the whole season. So products with, with tremendous amount of longevity, you know, one of the other uh, potential advantages to, to applying liquids is that you can apply at, at relatively low rates and still get really nice, uh, consistent nutrient distribution. Whereas with granular products, if you're applying at lower rates, uh, you can get spotty distribution just because it, it's fewer granules and, you know, there's more space in between them. And so, so maybe the, the, the feeding is not as consistent at, at, at low nitrogen rates. So, that, you know, that's a couple things to consider. But, the, uh, you know, the expensive equipment is a big one. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, the... The idea of efficiency is one more efficient than the other. You know, I, I hear mixed, um, I hear mixed opinions on that. You know, there are some people who believe that applying granulars is quicker and more efficient for them, and some people believe, you know, by applying liquids is a better way to go. Yeah, and I guess it, it, the dry could be very efficient if you're not planning on doing a bunch of other things at the property. If you're not going out there every other week to mow. You could get away with, you know, with dry some of the new technologies. You get away with two, like you said, two applications a year, and that saves you a lot of time and effort right there. But if you're if you're already having to be out there all the time, maybe not, maybe not as much. So really, it could depend a lot just on the operation and what their what their goals and emphasis is. Yeah, it's, yeah. So those kind of, you know, um, yeah, your operational efficiencies, you know, do do play a big part of it. Um, you know, the other thing about spraying is it gives you lots of options for applying multiple things at once that can be tank mixed. Uh, with granular products, you may be a little bit more limited into what can be impregnated onto a dry fertilizer. So there's some things like that. But, um, you know, one of the things that we that we talk about a lot with folks is, is this idea of making fewer applications. Um, you know, even if you're uh, so let, let's say you're a lawn care company, you're out in residential lawn care and. Um, your customers want you on that property. They want to see you there every five or six weeks so that they know you're you're doing your job. Um, you know, you can still get out there every five or six weeks and don't necessarily have to apply fertilizer every time. Maybe you're only applying fertilizer every every 12 weeks. Every uh, you know, you're skipping every one where you're not fertilizing, but you're still out there doing weed control and doing other things to the property. And um, there's actually a lot of efficiencies that can be gain from that overall of uh, the way you run your business. So, um, you know, even if you got to be out there frequently, you might not need to fertilize every time. And so slower right. control to these granular products could be a benefit. Just, we, we talked a little bit about uh, nitrogen needs. Of long, let's talk about nitrogen per application. Uh, is there, is there a limit on how much you can apply at once? 
Uh, is there too little to apply if you're trying to spoon feed? Uh, what, and what are some of the different technologies or things that, that influence what is too much and what's too little as far as nitrogen per application? And what are, I guess, and what are the benefits of, say, spoon feeding, you know, six, seven, eight applications a year versus, uh, you know, something like a one or two application process? Yeah, there are a lot of things that influence what is the appropriate rate. Um, we talk about a, a, an approach called uh, 4R nutrient stewardship. Um, and what, what the 4Rs are is applying the right product at the right rate, at the right time, in the right place. So if you think about sort of those four factors, you can envision sort of, you know, kind of this big matrix of all these you know, possible choices that you can make when making your decision and, and making them fit together like a puzzle. So, so you know, the rate that you apply has a lot to do with the source of nutrients that you're using. Um, you know, you mentioned spoon feeding, so uh, it's not at all uncommon for golf course superintendents to uh, spray liquid nutrient sources, especially on greens, tees, maybe even fairways, and they may be out there applying anywhere from uh, an eighth of a pound of nitrogen to, you know, two-tenths of a pound of nitrogen every, you know, you know, they might apply an eighth of a pound every week or, or you know, a tenth of a pound every two weeks or, or whatever. Um, you know, the, the, you know, what you want to shoot for is having a nice consistent supply of nutrients available to the plant. So you can do it by spoon feeding at low rates with soluble sources. Or um, if you want to use a slower controlled release fertilizer that's going to last two or three months, you, you, you have to apply that at a much higher rate, obviously, because you, you have to provide enough nitrogen for the plant to make it through that period of time. So, so if you're going to apply a fertilizer that's going to last three months, you know, you might be applying, you know, pound and a half, two pounds at a time. Uh, whereas opposed if you're spoon feeding in, maybe you're just providing, you're just applying a couple of tents. So there's, there's kind of a lot of factors that go into that decision. Um, but if, if we kind of want to back off a little bit and look at it in simpler terms and, and, you know, let's just start with, you know, soluble quick release nitrogen. Um, boy, I remember back when I was in, in undergraduate school, we talked about a pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet per growing month. And that, that's even what I remember, uh, maybe not per month, but yeah, per, per application, kind of when we were going to get your, your total amount. Yeah. And, you know, we've kind of backed off that quite a bit because we know that, you know, that was probably excessive and in a lot of places could have led to some water quality problems and things like that. So, you know, now we, we see application rates, you know, typically in the half a pound, maybe up to a pound event at a time with quick release sources, uh, oftentimes less than that. And that might be, you know, monthly to every six weeks or so, somewhere in that range. Um, you know, your your soil type's going to impact it a little bit, how well it holds nutrients and, and those kind of things. But, um, you know, typically now we see rates, you know, half a pound to a pound of end for general turf management. And then just to clarify, we, we kind of touched on it. Just for listeners, when we, when we refer to these uh, weights, you know, half a pound, whatever, we're referring to... Um, weight per thousand square feet. I know there's some guys, these guys I work with in the ag side, the, the, they, everything's in an acre, everything's in acres. Um, but for us in the kind of the turf ornamental, we're referring to pounds 
or weights per thousand square feet. Yeah, and and that and that's pounds of nutrient, not pounds of fertilizer. <laughs> right, correct. Correct. And so there are different, yeah, different uh, calculations to make sure you're putting that that down. Let's talk then about the applications for the time of year. What does applying nitrogen in the spring do versus, say, in the summer or fall? What does the different time of year, particularly in the Intermountain West here where we have, you know, really cold winters, we can have wet springs, really hot summers. What does fertilizing at different times or the nitrogen levels at different times um, do or what, what, what impacts does it have to fertilize at different times? Well, the cool season grasses like Kentucky bluegrass have a have a seasonal growth cycle, so they're going to grow primarily in the spring uh, during you know during during the cooler, more moderate temperatures. Uh, as summer starts to kick in, it, it's going to slow down simply because they're growing under heat stress and the plant is not is not as well adapted to that. Um, so growth slows down during the summer. And then in the fall, as temperatures cool down and growth conditions become more ideal for the plant, um, it you know it picks up and starts growing again. So, you know, we want we want nutrients to be to be available, you know, when the plant can use them, when when it can take them up. And if it's not if it's not growing vigorously, it's not taking them up so much. So, um, you know, times for for good nitrogen uptake are in the spring and in the fall primarily. It still needs in in the summer, maybe a little bit less. Um, in the spring, you know, though something that, that you have to think about is we typically get this 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 kind of growth flush response just simply due to the spring weather, and so you have to be a little bit careful about timing there and not applying too much nitrogen at once, so that you know, so that the plant's not growing so fast that that you can't keep up with it. So, is there any? Um validity to the thought that you know if you feed in the spring the plant is typically trying to grow a lot of top growth and flower versus in the fall it's kind of devoting a little bit more of that energy and nutrition to to the root system is, is there validity to that is that is that something that happens in the in the turf you know that's a good question and i and i don't know that we that, that, you, you would get different answers from different people, I think. Um, gotcha. I don't know that we absolutely know all the answers there, but, you know, spring is typically the, the period of highest growth. And so although we see a lot of top growth, we always we also see quite a bit of root growth in the spring. Um, we do think about fall and root growth, but even more than root growth, more more like um, carbohydrate reserves. And in the plant, as temperatures are cooling down in the fall, it's truly pumping carbohydrates into the crown of the plant and into the rhizomes in a, in a plant like Kentucky bluegrass to, to kind of harden off and store things up for the winter. So um, fall is an important time to make sure that your plants have good nutrition because uh, that's going to help them get through the winter better. Um, and especially in places where you can have, you know, severe winters, extended snow cover, you know, hard, hard freezing temperatures, things like that. I mean, you know, Kentucky bluegrass, it's really, really tolerant of cold temperatures and we rarely see winter kill, but you still want that plant uh, to be as well prepared for the winter as you can. So, so good nutrition in the fall is really, really important. What are the dangers? We talked, we have really hot summers here. What are the dangers of applying nitrogen uh, in the heat and what are some things we could do to still provide the plant with the nutrition it needs 
um, but reduce some of those those dangers. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we often talk about is is burn from fertilizers, which is really a, a salt effect. Um, so you apply too much soluble fertilizer at once. It, it dissolves in the soil. The water evaporates. And then you have this salt that basically, you know, kind of robs moisture from the plant. And that's and that's that's what burn is. And it can either be foliar or in the soil. So. In the summer, sometimes that's a little bit more extreme just because of the weather conditions. So you have to be careful about rates or sources. Use slow-release fertilizers, and that's much, much less likely to happen um, in in the summer. Um, as I mentioned, uh, growth of the plant is slowing down during that time of the year. So uh, applying slow-release nitrogen fertilizers in the summer makes sense because they're going to come out more slowly at a pace that's that's kind of uh, you know more matched with plant growth, um, and then you know heat heat in itself uh, puts the plant under stress. So um, heat and 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 water stress. If if you know you're unirrigated or sort of irrigation challenged, if you will. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that kind of they, they, they kind of play together there. But, you know, pay attention to the growth rate of your plant, trying to match nutrient availability with growth rate. Um, and in the summer, you know, not put down uh, too much soluble in at once. Of course, it also and then also has a big impact on, on certain plant diseases. Too much N can, uh, you know, push certain diseases and too little N can also uh, push other diseases. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot. Of, there's, there's a few things to balance there. Right. I, I like that you touched on it too. That, that it's the salt effect. I think that gets lost on a lot of people when we talk about uh, nitrogen burn and things. It's really, it's not that the the nitrogen is physically burning plants or things like that. For the most part, it's just the salt buildup in the soil and in the high heat, it, it robs that moisture and it's just, it's more of a drying effect than anything that, that causes that burn, particularly with dry fertilizers. Exactly. And, and think about it. And it's not just nitrogen too. If you're, if you're using like, let's say, say uh, uh, muriate of potash, which is generally the most popular phosphor, uh, uh, potassium source, it's got a high, it's got a high salt index. So you have to be a little bit careful about when and how much you're using of that. Um, sulfate of potash is, is, is a much safer source of, of potassium from from um, a burn and desiccation standpoint. So, uh, and then of course you get into in in a climate like the Intermountain West, where soils dry out quickly. Um, you might already have you know high pH soils with that are relatively high EC, and where irrigation water quality can be an issue too, and that can complicate that whole process. All right. So let's move on uh, into different kind of types of nitrogen. I think most of us in the industry know that not all nitrogen is created equal, though it may have been at one point. So let's get into some of the technologies. How does how do technologies today in nitrogen differ from, say, 40, 50 years ago? Good question. A really interesting topic. So, so uh, just so that all the listeners know, I, I work for a company. What we do is we make slow and controlled release fertilizers and stabilized nitrogen sources. So, um, you know, we're really getting into into a subject here that's near near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, when you look at all the all the different technologies, and we, you know, we 
so th there, there are lots of slow-release fertilizers that have been around for a long time, and, and we generally kind of lump them all into this one category of slow-release. But the technology has changed. Um, we, we kind of split these out into three different categories now. Slow-release still exists, and that's, that's fertilizers like, you know, uh, fertilizers based on, you know, methylene, urea, and urea formaldehyde. So, so uh, brands like Neutraline, Nitroform, um, uh, Methex, those are some of the ones that you might be familiar with. And, and, and you know, that, that kind of technology has been around since the 1950s. We have uh, sulfur-coated urea fertilizers that have been around since the 1970s, so they've been around for a long time. Uh, more recently, polymer-coated urea, which is sort of similar to sulfur-coating, except that instead of having multiple layers like a sulfur-coated product does, uh, it's got one layer of a, of a polymer, of a, of a plastic, uh, in essence, and these polymers um, give you a, you know, give you a really, really high level of control of how nutrients are going to be released. You know, they've been out there in the turf market uh, since, you know, the early 1990s, a little bit over over 25 years. Uh, Polyon, that was first introduced by Purcell Technologies in about 1992. Uh, that's kind of the longstanding one out there in, in the turf industry. So, so they're not super new, but they're relatively new. But they really give you a very high level of control. Um, and then the one other um, group that belongs in there is a group called stabilized nitrogen, or what a lot of people call inhibitors. And these are sort of the new kids on the block. Uh, they work a little bit differently. But what, what these inhibitors do is rather than sort of changing the fertilizer itself, um, what we do is we take urea and we add some components to it that changes the way that urea is transformed in the soil. So uh, one of those inhibitors is called the urease inhibitor, and what it does is it, uh, it kind of slows down the breakdown of nitrogen, and its main purpose is to reduce volatilization. So volatilization is when that nitrogen gets turned into ammonia gas and it goes off into the atmosphere, and that's just, you know, inefficiency. It's lost nitrogen. Some of these stabilized nitrogen sources have have another component in there that's called a nitrification inhibitor. And what that does is it slows down the conversion of ammonium in the soil to nitrate. And of course, I think we all know that, that nitrate uh, is highly mobile. Uh, it, it can, uh, you know, leach out and be lost, lost to uh, groundwater, you know, and again, that's, uh, it represents inefficiency, but also, you know, some environmental concerns. So kind of retaining that nitrogen as ammonium is, is a good thing. So, Anyway, these, these, these stabilized nitrogen are kind of the new kid on the block. So there's, you know, we now kind of split these out into three different, you know, slow release, controlled release, and stabilized. But then we kind of all throw them under this classification called enhanced efficiency fertilizers, which is just sort of an umbrella term that covers a whole group. Right. So, so you kind of, you, you went into a lot there. Let's, let's break down, if you don't mind, a little bit piece by piece, and let's talk just about maybe methylene urea and urea formaldehyde you talked those are the, kind of the oldest ones they've been around for a long time H how do they work what is we say they're they're in this slow release category what is it that makes them slow release how are they broken down or released or made available to the plant sure yeah sorry i got so long-winded there with that last answer i just that, you know, i get, uh, get kind of excited about this yeah stuff. we get excited about this stuff yeah yeah so, so the methylene urea is urea formaldehyde the way to think of those is we take is we take urea and it's involved in a chemical reaction and we build chains. So we build these molecules that are long chains. 
And um, those are broken down by soil microorganisms. The soil microorganisms feed on those chains to get carbon because that's their main food that they need. And in the process, they break up the chains. And as they do this, it basically breaks off little pieces of urea that then go out into the soil. So, um, you know, what makes, you know, say a methylene urea product like neutraline different than a urea formaldehyde-based product like nitroform is simply the length of those chains. The shorter chains break up more quickly and release more quickly. The longer chains last longer. So natural organic fertilizers are another one that I didn't mention before, but, but they, they work kind of the same way. They, they're, they're, they depend on soil microbes to break down these organic compounds. Um, so these products that are dependent on soil microbes, uh, their release rates can vary a lot with temperature because um, as temperatures are warmer, microbes reproduce, so there's more of them. They also, each one metabolizes more quickly. So... Um, in the spring and in the late fall when it's pretty cool, those kind of products are going to release nutrients very slowly. Um, as we get into mid-spring, late spring, early summer, and also earlier in the fall, you know, they release at pretty good rates. Um, and interestingly, in the middle of the summer, sometimes if it gets hot enough, depending on conditions, those microbial populations can actually dip down because they're stressed out too. Um, and so depending on your location and the exact conditions you know it's it's possible in the middle of summer those kind of products release might even slow down a little bit just because the microbes aren't as healthy interesting so then moving on let's talk some about some of the coated fertilizers i i would assume uh sulfur coated is probably the most the most basic and simple uh, of these yeah. coated fertilizers yeah and they've been around for a long time you know like i said development of sulfur coated fertilizers actually started in the 1960s but they really kind of came out into the market in, in the 1970s. And, and the idea was just to um, kind of protect urea by putting something insoluble around it. So uh, sulfur was a good fit um, because it's insoluble. You could melt it down and spray it on the outside of a fertilizer particle. And it's an important secondary nutrient. So, right. um, so the way sulfur-coated products work is if there's like a – a nick or a hole in the coating, water soaks in, dissolves the urea on the inside, and it comes out pretty much immediately. Um, uh, so the way they kind of work in the field, some of them have a thinner sulfur coating, some of them have a thicker sulfur coating, and so it's kind of like popcorn. Some of them release early, some of them release late. Oh, interesting. Um, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, a lot of people think it, it kind of bleeds out more slowly, but it's really more of a kind of a we call it a catastrophic release on the basis of individual particles. Interesting. And then, so compare that with some of the, the polymer coated products you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, so the one other thing I'll add about the sulfur coated products is that, is that because of the way they're made, you know, longevity is, is kind of limited up to about you know, 10 weeks or so of, of longevity. And there, there are a couple of reasons that I won't get into the details, but so they're sort of a medium term slow release. So as we get into the polymer coated products, uh, again, we take this, this polymer, spray it on the outside of the particle, it hardens. We can make products that last. So, so polymer, polymer coated fertilizers release a little bit differently because we put them out in the landscape, we water them, water slowly soaks in through the coating. So then you have this dissolved nutrient on the inside. 
In this case, the coating the coating remains intact, and that's really important. So what happens now? You have this sort of nutrient soup on the inside, and those nutrients start to bleed out very slowly through that polymer coating. We can you know control how long the fertilizer lasts simply by putting more coating on it. So we can build a product that lasts about six weeks by putting a very thin coating on it. We can build a product that lasts six months by increasing the thickness of that coating. That that kind of coating technology is really really powerful. That's cool. And then so when you talk about, you know, similar sulfur coated, if you say, say you're producing a, a six month product, are there some prills in there that have the thin coating, some medium and some long? Or is there, a, is there in some of these a single product that will release slowly over that whole time? Yeah, so with polymer-coated products, generally the coating thickness is, is, is very consistent. There's going to be some variation because not every particle is the same size. But in general, the coating thickness is pretty consistent. And so what's controlling release is just the, you know, the, the thickness of that coating and sort of the physics and chemistry of that coating. So, it's, so, they, they, so they work, so the polymer-coated products work differently than sulfur-coated products for sure. Um, and the fact, the fact that we have such, you know, good sort of uh, chemistry and engineering controls over the nature of that coating, you know, allows manufacturers to make products that are, that are pretty darn predictable in how they're going to work. Regardless of, say, microbial activity or temperature, things like that. Yeah, so that's a really good question. So polymer-coated products also do respond to temperature, but it's for a different reason. It's not because they're microbially broken down. They respond to temperature because um, what is what is driving those nutrients out of the particle is a, is a chemical process called diffusion. And um, diffusion speeds up at higher temperatures. It slows down at, at um at, at cooler temperatures. So temperature does have an impact, although in general, the impact of temperature on polymer-coated products is not as great as it is on products that, that depend on microbial release. And so that polymer gives you a lot more predictability and kind of control over what you're trying to do versus a sulfur-coated or even, even the yeah. methylene urea. Exactly. And in fact, you know, what we do in our process is, is we measure the release rate of these products at a number of different temperatures. So we can, we can predict how long they're going to last in the environment based on, you know, kind of predicted temperatures during the season or, or historical temperatures. That's, that's more difficult to do with a methylene urea, urea formaldehyde, natural organic type fertilizer, uh, but with polymer coated products, you know, we have we have a high level of control of, of how they're manufactured and a high level of understanding of how they release. So let's move into that last group you talked about, that stabilized nitrogen. I know this is probably one that I am least familiar with. I mean, I know of nitrogen stabilizers. I've used and sold Hydrex uh, before, but talk to us a little bit about what those are, how they can be used, and the impact they have on the on the nitrogen. Yeah, so, so I talked about... Um, you know, two different stabilizers. The first is one called a urease inhibitor. Uh, the the specific compound that we use in this most in most other of them is called is called MBPT. But what this does is it is it slows down this process called hydrolysis, which is where urea is is kind of broken up by an enzyme in the soil. 
Um, during that process, and it's just naturally occurring process, during that process, some ammonium, which we like, on the way to becoming ammonium, becomes ammonia gas, and it goes up into the atmosphere. Now, in, in environments like Utah, especially with high soil pH, we tend to see uh, the potential for a lot more ammonia volatilization. So uh, using a urease inhibitor can really help to conserve N uh, in the soil profile compared to using just like straight unamended urea. Um, I should point out that slow and controlled release pro products also slow down that volatilization uh, issue uh, compared to unamended urea. So in, in situations where you have um, high heat, drying soils, uh, high soil pH, wind, you know, using something to protect your nitrogen is really, really smart to keep it around in the soil so the plant can use it. So, so the other half of the picture with some inhibitors is the nitrification inhibitor. And what's important about that is not only are we limiting how much nitrate is going into the soil, but we're, we're preserving nitrogen in the ammonium form, okay? So an ammonium has a positive charge on it, and, uh, of course, soil has a net negative charge, positive and negative attract. So the soil can hang on to those ammonium ions and keep it around for longer. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the inhibitor compound uh, that, that, that's that's in there is called DCD or disyandiamide, but we call it DCD for short. It lasts for about eight weeks in the soil. So it will hold that nitrogen as ammonium for, you know, eight, eight weeks, give or take. And so in essence, it, it's, it's sort of making that fertilizer behave like a slow release fertilizer, even though technically it's not slow release. Right. And it's going to respond to it in a similar way. Interesting. So, so now we, we've talked about some of those technologies. What, what specifically is, is Coke doing? What, what specific products does Coke have that kind of address some of these issues or fit in these different categories? Yeah, so kind of going through in order that we talked about, if we look at the slow-release fertilizers, I already mentioned Neutralin, Nitroform. Uh, again, those have been around for a long time. They've been manufactured by other companies and, and bought and sold many times over the years. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, I've learned a lot about the fertilizer business since I've been in it. Yeah. On the sulfur-coated standpoint, uh, uh, the primary product we make is called XCU, which is a polymer-coated sulfur-coated urea. And then, oh, I should mention, we, we, make, we make a liquid slow-release product called Nitamin, which is you know kind of similar to Neutralene. It's one of these liquid slow-release products that's we call them triazones, so it's like a methylene urea, but it's it's low it's it, it, it's it's soluble in water, and so we can make a liquid slow release fertilizer that has a longevity of about eight to you know ten weeks or so. And some of the other products out there that that some folks might be familiar with are are um, Coron or uh, Ensure. Um, which I know is a popular one in the West. So those are kind of similar products, but it's a, it's a liquid slow release for those of you who run spray programs. And then um, polymer-coated products, uh, Duration CR, uh, polymer-coated product we manufacture there, and, and we make that in, in longevities that go anywhere from a month and a half to six months. And so, and again, those longevities are temperature-based. So in Utah, where it's quite hot, 
longevity might be a little bit shorter than that. But, you know, based on the conditions and what you're trying to achieve, we can put together blends or um, our customers can put together blends that you can achieve just about anything you want in your fertilizer program. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And um, and then finally, with the stabilized products, uh, we make two products, Uflex and Umax, which have both the urease and nitrification inhibitors in them. Uh, they have those inhibitors at different rates. So, you know, Uflex uh, lasts about 8 to 10 weeks. Umax uh, about 12 weeks or sometimes uh, a little bit more based on that CD content. And then you mentioned Hydrex. So what Hydrex is, is it's those inhibitors that are in Uflex and Umax, except it's only the inhibitors. So you can dissolve urea in your spray tank, add Hydrex to it, and and get you know, the same kind of results that you get with the Umax and Uflex granular product. Just kind of in an a la carte form or sold separately product. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's a great option, too, for people on spray programs, uh, especially since since choices for slow release are kind of limited. Uh, you can use these nitrogen stabilizers, uh, and if you're using DCD at the right amount, um, you can achieve that same kind of result you'll, 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 achieve, you'll achieve with a with a more traditional or a granular slow-release product. That's awesome. I'm not sure how many people get as uh, excited and into it as maybe you and I do with this, but I, I really appreciate your time. <laughs> this, this makes me excited. I enjoy, I enjoy learning about this. So thanks again for your time. I appreciate you taking some time out to talk about uh, this. And we can do it again soon. Yeah, well, thanks for calling on the air. It was it was it was fun to do this, and uh, I just like to pass on a hello to uh, anybody out there in Utah who might remember me. It's been a while, but uh, maybe there's someone out there. Good deal. Well, hopefully, uh, if you're ever out this way, you'll have to stop by, and we'll touch base. Yeah, sure enough. Thanks All a lot. Right. Eric.